Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm your host, Julianne DeLynn Hatton. Today we have a special Christmas edition on the Mormon Faircast. We're talking about the Book of Mormon as a second witness to the divinity of Jesus Christ. We'll be speaking with Neil Rapoli, who's been researching the Book of Mormon for several years. He has several papers published by Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture, and is currently working at Book of Mormon Central as a research project manager and also as their operations manager. Good evening, Neil. Hey, how you doing? Great. It's such a pleasure to talk to you during this Christmas season about such a special topic. Oh, absolutely. I love talking about uh, the Savior. I love Christmas time. Uh, I love the opportunity it gives us to uh, really go back and, and reflect on what the Savior has meant to us in our lives. We're going to begin by talking about the biblical witness of Jesus Christ, then the Book of Mormon as a second witness to the coming of Christ, and then we'll be discussing what the ancient prophets in the Book of Mormon say about the coming of Christ. Let's begin by talking about the biblical witness of the birth and mission of Jesus Christ. All right, well, um, obviously the Bible is ultimately the main source we have on the life and birth and the atonement of Jesus Christ. It gives us, you know, we have the, the gospel accounts from, you know, Matthew and Luke, which give us the nativity narratives that we hear so much about um, and we talk so much about during the Christmas season and just uh, an inspiring story, I think, about the birth of our Savior and what that meant to so many people living there who were able to be part of it, the shepherds, the wise men, and so forth. Um, of course, the story doesn't really start there. We have the entire Old Testament, which, you know, the New Testament apostles uh, were frequently reminding people that these prophecies in their Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, they bore witness of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Peter in Acts 10:43 says, you know, that to him, meaning Christ, give all prophets witness. Uh, that through his name, whatsoever, um, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. So, you know, you have a witness of Jesus Christ for centuries beforehand. And, uh, you know, these people, they, they were honored. They felt privileged to live in that time when he lived and um, to be there and to be eyewitnesses to his life and teachings and his ministry. Um, it meant a lot to them, I think. So we prophesy about the Savior in the Bible. We read about that. Very uplifting, very affirming. Let's go to the Book of Mormon. Uh, well, the Book of Mormon is uh, my favorite, uh, of course. Um, it's what I've really spent a lot of my time studying and thinking about. Um, and what I love about the Book of Mormon, though, is while we do have prophecies of Christ, you know, we have... Um, things in, in the Old Testament uh, that uh, seem to allude to or prophesy of Christ, you really get a, a much more clearer picture much earlier on uh, with the Book of Mormon. You know, starting with, with Nephi, the very first prophet, the very first writer in the Book of Mormon, uh, talking about Christ very explicitly uh, very early on, early 6th century, probably about 590 B.C. or so, uh, you have Nephi giving a prophecy, well, really, he's describing a vision that he had. And in this vision, he's trying to understand a, a dream his father had. So this is, you know, kind of a, a revelation about revelation. But it, it gets really interesting because when Nephi asks to know the meaning of the tree that his father saw, he doesn't really get a straight answer. Um, 
the angel doesn't just say, well, well, it means the love of God, which is what we always get when, when we ask in Sunday school or whatever, right? But instead, the angel uh, shows him a vision. And in the vision he has, he beholds a virgin and he sees that, you know, she's the most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. So the angel asks him, knowest thou the condescension of God? And uh, Nephi, you know, he still doesn't know. Uh, he says, I know that God loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. Why is this important? Uh, well, I, I think this is important for a few reasons. For one thing, the, the episode itself shows us Nephi is very humble. He doesn't, um, he, he recognizes that he doesn't know everything. And, and he's okay saying that he doesn't have the answer to everything. But what he does know is the most important part, that God loves his children. Uh, what he's about to find out is that the condescension of God is itself a manifestation of God's love for his children. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the condescension of God is the Savior, Jesus Christ, coming down to earth and descending below all things. And uh, he's coming, you know, through, you know, it's a manifestation of the love of God that he's willing to bring himself down below all things so that he can ultimately lift us up above all things. So then we talk about the life and death of Christ in 1 Nephi. Why do you think we read that in the first of the Book of Mormon? You know, that's that's a really good question. Um, and a lot of people uh, look at that and they, they see it and they're like, oh, that is so obviously, you know, early Christian teaching and and uh, some people think, you know, it couldn't possibly really be a genuine uh, text from the 6th century B.C. We, we get this clear teaching about the life and death of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, all in, in detail very early on. Um, but I think, you know, I, I believe in prophets, I believe in revelation, and I believe there's, there's nothing, there's no reason God couldn't have revealed all of this to Nephi, even at that early stage. And I think that the reason we get it so early on is because it, it kind of establishes a precedent for the rest of the Book of Mormon. This is a book about Jesus Christ, and this is another testament of Jesus Christ. And the reason we, we even have the Book of Mormon at all is to stand as a second witness of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, this tells us we're not wasting any time. You know, we're, we're jumping right down. We're getting down to business. This book is about Jesus Christ. And there were prophets hundreds of years prior to him who knew his life and, and his teachings and, you know, the details of his birth even with pretty good detail, uh, thanks to the revelation and what the Lord uh, revealed to them and commanded them to write down so that we could have it later. And before we leave First Nephi, it's not just about the birth. It's about the life of Christ and the atonement as well. So like you say, we're getting right into it very early on. Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, Nephi's vision is very detailed. Um, you know, he, he sees the Savior's ministry. He sees 12 apostles. He sees, you know, him going forth and uh, healing the sick and afflicted and casting out devils and unclean spirits and you know, he sees in pretty good detail, and, and ultimately he sees that uh, the Savior would be lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. So, yeah, it's certainly not just about the birth. I mean, he sees a, a, a fairly detailed vision of, of the works of Jesus Christ and the things he would do in his mortal life. Let's move on to King Benjamin. 
King Benjamin talks about the words that are joyful. He's declaring the glad tidings of great joy when he refers to the Savior. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, that's anyone who's who's read the New Testament accounts, uh, you, Luke 2, they're going to recognize glad tidings of great joy instantly as a phrase that's associated with Christmas time, the Christmas season, the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, and I think, I mean, again, this is, King Benjamin is also, you know, he's another 120, he's still 120 or so years before Jesus Christ is born. And he's already, you know, has an angel declaring the glad tidings of great joy unto him. And so, you know, this is I, one of the significant things about that, I think, is this tells us that uh, the glad tidings of great joy that the shepherds heard out in the fields of Judea were not just for those shepherds in Judea, and they weren't just for the people living at the time of Christ. Um, they're not just for the people who live after the time of Christ. Here we have someone 120 or 124 or five years beforehand. On a different continent. On a completely different continent, completely different part of the world. And an angel's coming to him and declaring the glad tidings of great joy. And as, as you read on, you go through what Benjamin describes, what King Benjamin describes. And it's not just to Benjamin either, by the way. I mean, Benjamin's now turning around and, and giving this message to his people. And it's the same glad tidings, the same... Uh, message that you get in the New Testament with the life of Jesus Christ. He, just like Nephi, has a pretty clear understanding of uh, what the Savior's life and teachings and experience is going to be. He sees uh, that uh, the Lord omnipotent who reigneth uh, from all eternity to all eternity shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and you shall dwell in the tabernacle of clay. Um, he will work mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk. Uh, the blind receive their sight, the deaf to hear, uh, and the curing of all manner of diseases. Uh, he sees um, that his mother shall be called Mary, and he sees that he, you know, he will be scourged and he shall be crucified. Uh, but he also sees that he will be raised on the third day from the dead, and um, and that his blood atoneth for the sins of the world. So again, you know, I mean, it's just that's just a summary of, of everything Benjamin said, and it's ultimately a summary of, of what the, the New Testament teaches us about Christ and, and uh, his role as our Savior. This is the same glad tidings that was proclaimed to the shepherds and that is proclaimed uh, by Christians everywhere, really, that uh, through Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven and uh, we can be healed. And it is. It's glad tidings of great joy. Absolutely. Let's talk about Alma and his testimony of Jesus Christ. This was at about 83 BC. Yeah, and, and Alma's a really interesting story because we all know this is Alma the Younger, of course, and he was not always uh, the most sterling <laughs> example for your young men or young women or, or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, he, was, he was rebellious, a, a rebellious teenager, if you will. But, you know, he came around, and it, he didn't just naturally come around to the gospel. It was a pretty traumatic but spiritual experience that he had where he himself had an angel come, and, uh, and uh, the tidings were not glad <laughs> in that case. Um, it was a very stern warning, but he was actually unconscious for three days after the angel appears, and, uh, you know, his, his family and, and loved ones supported him, and they were all surrounding him and praying for him, and... Uh, meanwhile, uh, we later find out in Alma 36, when he relates the experience to his son, that he actually saw, uh, Jesus Christ in vision while he was unconscious. And 
So when Alma starts talking about the role that the Redeemer would have in the lives of the people, um, and I think, I mean, I, I'm only going to be paraphrasing because I can't quote Alma 36 off the top of my head, but you have right at the center of Alma 36, you have a powerful turning point where he talks about being harrowed up by the pains of his sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a very powerful uh, imagery that, that you get in, in the, you know, you have to go read the actual words, but it's this very powerful moving account of the pains he felt uh, as his soul was harrowed up by all his sins and and all that he had done wrong. Um, and then he sees Jesus Christ, and after that, the harrowing pains turn, and he experiences joy as exquisite as was his pain. Mm-hmm. And so when, when we understand that background for Alma, I think when he's in the city of Gideon um, here, and, and he bears witness, and um, he talks about, uh, you know, the time of the Redeemer, it's coming, uh, it's its getting close, and this is early first century, like you said, uh, probably around 83 BC. And um, he says specifically, again, like Benjamin, he has pretty specific details about the birth. It says, he shall be born of Mary, being a virgin, precious and chosen vessel. Um, but then he goes on to talk about what the Savior will do, and in verse 11 he says, and he shall go forth suffering pains, and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and uh, and he talks about these the pains that the Savior will endure, um, and he talks about how he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And again, just remembering where what Alma's background is, this this understanding that he's going to take upon them the na- the, the pains of his people. This is something Alma knows directly firsthand from experience. Indeed. Because he, he already he already experienced the pains and already saw the Lord take them away. And what, again, is, is interesting, because while he, he's talking about everything the Savior's going to do in future tense, he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. The fact that this the atonement has not happened yet, mm-hmm. the fact that uh, um, that this is these are all future events, hasn't affected... Um, hasn't changed the fact that Alma has already experienced the removal of his pains through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So of all the prophets in the Book of Mormon, Alma is feeling this, really. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, again, I think it just witnesses to the fact that, again, these aren't glad tidings that are just for the people living in the Savior's time or people after. I mean, this is someone 80 years before, different continent, and not only does he know about and have this all revealed to him, but he's already experienced the power of the atonement in his own life in removing his own pains and replacing it with joy. So Alma's not your traditional prophet. I guess that's the point that I'm trying to make. He's someone who has lived this. So it just gives a very interesting twist on the atonement. Mm -hmm. And again, it takes us back to Acts 10.43, to him give all the prophets witness. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So here's some more prophets in the Book of Mormon witnessing of not only the birth of Jesus Christ, the beautiful Christmas story, but the life of Christ, uh, the mission of Christ, and the atonement of Christ. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's it's absolutely beautiful, I think. Um, and, yeah, just, I mean, I don't know, maybe some of the other prophets have a similar connection like Alma does, but we know so much more about his background, and we know... Uh, 
we know enough to be able to see that connection and know that this was very personal for him. Can you give us a little background about Samuel the Lamanite during 6 BC? Uh, yeah, so Samuel is, as his own title, if you will, indicates, he's a Lamanite. He's he's an outsider for the Nephites, and Nephites don't really like Lamanites very much. And so uh, we don't know much about him beyond that, except that uh, he was commanded by the Lord to, to prophesy in Zarahemla, so he's got to walk right into... Um, you know, Nephite capital territory. And it is, I think, important to understand if you read back earlier in Helaman, this is a time period where there are uh, somewhat better relations between the Nephites and Lamanites. There's been some commerce back and forth between them and and people from both the Nephite and Lamanite background have been going up into the land northward and uh, there's been trade and exchange and all kinds of things. So, so it maybe isn't that unprecedented to have a Lamanite show up mm-hmm. in, uh, in Zarahemla. But I still have a hard time imagining Nephites taking it well, having a Lamanite show up and prophesy to them and tell them they've got to repent because the day of the Lord is coming and it's not going to be good for them if they don't repent. Uh, but uh, but that's, I think, some background on on Samuel. And, you know, he, he has a very strong warning. He's, he's telling them to repent and he's war- warning them of a lot of destruction. But before all the destruction is coming, he does also prophesy about the coming of the Savior and his birth. And it's really uh, one of the more significant prophecies, in my opinion, because he gives a specific year. He tells them, you know, he says, I give unto you a sign for five years more cometh, and behold, then cometh the Son of God to redeem all those who shall believe on his name. And if that wasn't going to happen, he had a death wish right then and there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and he, yeah, he, he really put his prophetic credibility on the line. <laughs> I mean, this isn't this isn't Lehi saying in 600 years. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can say 600 years. No one will. Uh, I'll be dead before then, right? But this is this is Samuel. He's saying that within the lifetimes of probably most of the people who can hear him, and you know, within his own lifetime to be sure, he's saying the Lord's going to come, and he gives a specific sign. He says that there will be a day, a night, and a day uh, where there will be no darkness. And I mean, that's a pretty gutsy prediction yeah, right there. Yeah, you can't fake me. that, right. Yeah, you, you, you can't fake that. You're not going to you're not going to pull the wool over everybody's eyes and you know, so he, this is a this is a pretty bold prophecy on Samuel's part. Um and you know, it wasn't just him who, you know, he didn't just give himself a death wish uh, as we will later find out as as we go into 3rd Nephi. This really put the lives of everyone who trusted in Samuel on the line. Um and so it's a, it's a bold prophecy that uh, that Samuel makes here. And also, I do find it interesting that they're not even talking about something that's going to happen there. It's a real extension of your belief to hear about something that you really can't relate to at this point that's going to happen very far away, but somehow impact your life. I mean, this takes a lot of convincing on Samuel oh, yeah. the Lamanite's part. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know... I. I think that's why the signs that he prophesies of, both the sign of his birth and the sign of the Savior's death that he also prophesies of with the three days of darkness and the you know, massive destruction that he predicts, I think that's why those signs are so strong and so powerful because, like you said, this, is, this has got to be really hard for people to wrap their heads around. Mm-hmm. Um, by now, I mean, we're nearly 600 years after Lehi. Nobody has ventured that far off of shore, I'm, I, I suspect, since that time. So, 
Lehi's story is probably almost mythic to them at this point. A lot mm-hmm. of, you know, your average Nephite. And so the idea that something's going to happen far, far across the sea and it's going to matter to you. I mean, that's that's definitely got to be really difficult for the average Nephite to wrap their head around. And even with the signs that are given, mm-hmm. you know, how are you really supposed to um, believe that just because there was no darkness this night, a child was actually born on the other side of the world, and that child is going to bring you hope and salvation and faith and all of these things. Even with the signs, I think it's it's definitely asking a lot, uh, you know, to, to get people to believe him. So what transpires next? Well, what transpires next, I think, is actually very interesting because it, it doesn't take very long. You know, We all know how long five years is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so five years passes and various things happen in that five years. Uh, but what's really interesting is, um, according to the Book of Mormon's own chronology, you have Samuel showing up in the 86th year of the reign of the judges. Uh-huh. And then you have the 91st year passing away. And, you know, any any standard count of the years uh, from 86 to 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 91st year... That's the year most people were probably expecting the sign to come because that's one, two, three, four, five years. Okay. Um, and then it doesn't come. <laughs> and so you've got a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of anxiety as, as the 92nd year begins uh, because you've got a lot of people who are starting to say, it's too late. The deadline uh-huh. has passed. Right. And it is time for uh, you know the believers to pay up for whatever reason. Uh, they decide that, uh, and it just as an aside, my guess is that there's probably something going on here as far as um, the law of Moses and the punishment for following a, a false prophet or something like that um, is probably why they can decide that these people should be killed. Interesting. Um, if the sign doesn't come true. But I can't really go into depth on that because it's just an offhand thought that I've had uh, mm-hmm. for a while and I haven't looked it up further. But you have basically people saying, oh, the time is too late, and obviously believers are still holding out hope, and somehow they determine a specific day um, that uh, that they think, okay, this is when we have waited long enough, and uh, there's something about that day, we don't have the details in the text, but mm-hmm. there's something about that day that gives them some kind of cause to think, the, the sign should come on or before that time, and if it's after that time, it's definitely too late. There's no way it's coming. Um, and so it's you know it's kind of coming down to the wire for the believers here. Which takes us to Third Nephi one fifteen. Yes, um, which is a beautiful story. I think um, just before Third Nephi one fifteen, you have Nephi, the prophet at the time. Uh, going to the Lord and praying to him and saying, what are we going to do tonight? We die if the sign does not appear. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, in verse 13, the Lord says, lift up your head and be of good cheer. For behold, the time is at hand, and on this night shall the sign be given. And on the morrow come I into the world to show unto the world that I will fulfill all which I have caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. And this is Jesus Christ, and he's now speaking to Nephi. Who's Nephi? Nephi is the prophet of the people at the time. He's a descendant of 
Alma and ultimately a descendant of the original Nephi we talked about uh, at the beginning. Um, and Samuel the Lamanite is out of the picture. <laughs> and Samuel the Lamanite is out of the picture. Actually, I can't give you the exact chapter and verse, but I know that the Book of Mormon actually tells us that Where Samuel he went. the Lamanite disappears <laughs> and he's not heard from again. And so he kind of gets out of Dodge. He's uh -huh. just like, I, I'm... I, I gave myself a five-year deadline. I'm getting as far away as I can or, or something. I don't know if, if uh, that's what's really going on. But he, he's nowhere to be found. And so Nephi is kind of taking charge of the community here, uh, the, the believers, the people who put their trust and faith in Samuel's prophecy. And, uh, you know, when he prays to the Lord, the Lord gives him this really beautiful, inspiring answer uh, and says, don't worry, it's okay, I'm coming. And the sign's going to be here right when you need it. And sure enough, verse 15 we're told that the words which came unto Nephi were fulfilled according as they had been spoken. Uh, for behold, at the going down of the sun, there was no darkness, and the people began to be astonished that there was no darkness when the night came. And so the timing there is is absolutely serendipitous. It's it's inspired. And, you know, I don't know what to make of it as far as if it's just dumb luck that the unbelievers just picked the right day mm -hmm. or or what. I, I tend to think there's something more significant going on there. There was something they had calculated as far as uh, the calendar and astronomy and whatnot goes that had determined it should come this day or it's not coming. Um, but none of that is really that important. What's most important, I think, is the fact that it came. And I find it really significant that it's light. Uh, that marks the sign of his coming, because we all know he's known as the light of the world. And for the Nephites, their whole world was was lit that night he was born. And that light that night delivered them from death. And Jesus Christ, the light of the world, came to deliver us all from death. And such a beautiful passage in 19. And it came to pass that the sun did rise in the morning again, according to its proper order. Mm -hmm. And they knew that it was the day that the Lord should be born because the sign which had been given. Absolutely. And that, that sun rising again, just the light association there uh, after. And, and I don't know how it is they could even tell the sun was going up and down, but they could. Um, after after a whole night of no darkness, they saw the sun rise and, you know, this is the day, and Christ is coming into the world. And like I said, you know, the, the sign delivered them that day. But he's going to deliver all of us, you know, on an eternal scale. He's going he's gonna to deliver us from death. He delivers us from pain. He delivers us from sickness. He delivers us from sin. To me, it's tragic that the rest of the world doesn't know this Christmas story. I so agree with you. So, Neil, we've talked about the biblical witness of the birth and mission of Jesus Christ. We've discussed the Book of Mormon prophets who witness of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about why a second witness is so important. So, I think there's actually a lot of reasons why having a second witness of Jesus Christ is really important in today's world. And the Book of Mormon itself, on the title page, it gives us several reasons as to its purpose and what it seeks to accomplish. It you know, um, just reading straight from the title page, it says, which is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, and that they may know the covenants of the Lord, and that they are not cast off forever. And also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. And that, I think, is really the key right there. I mean, 
There's a lot of important functions the Book of Mormon serves as a second witness. I mean, talking about that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that's important because the Book of Mormon itself talks about how many plain and precious things were taken out of the gospel when it was first revealed. They were removed. And one of the things it talks about in 1 Nephi 13 being removed, one of the plain and precious things, is the covenants. And so one reason why it's important to have the second witness is to restore those covenants of the Lord to all of God's children. But the convincing part there, that Jesus is the Christ, and it's, it's for both Jew and Gentile, so this is really for everyone. If you look at what's going on in the world today and you look at what's happening with the Bible, uh, there are a lot of people who doubt the Bible, who doubt the message of Christ that it delivers. Um, and there, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and there's, you know, there's a challenge to its prophecies. There's a secular challenge to the authenticity of uh, its message. There's, there's scholars that challenge uh, almost every detail about uh, the Bible and its witness. And so I think it's highly significant that the Lord saw fit to reveal so much about the Savior's life to prophets on a completely different side of the world. And even, and we didn't, we didn't talk about this part, but in, in 3 Nephi 11, where they even see the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, uh, and they, they interact with the resurrected Lord. Uh, that's such an important thing, and, and that he commanded them to write this down and to preserve this record, uh, because it's a powerful witness uh, that assures us that what the Bible is teaching and what the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ is true. And we can rely on that, and we can rely on him, uh, because he is exactly who we're, we're told he is. He's the Son of God, and he's the Savior and Redeemer of the world. And the perfect theme for this Christmas season. Thank you so much, Neil. Uh, thank you, Julianne. This episode of the Mormon Faircast is produced by Tom Hatton. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it in iTunes and by rating it and writing a review. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org or you may join the conversation at fairblog.org.